All right, so we're going to wrap up our, uh, our series on Christianity and culture. And I uh, just want to go through a, a, few, a few things today um, as we wrap up on thinking about how we participate in culture. We've already talked quite a bit about that in terms of our vocation, in terms of our relationship to the civil authorities, um, and as we examined the Noahic Covenant and the cultural mandate and all of those things. Um, so in some ways, this is sort of summarizing the things that we've learned over the last um, four or five classes. And so I'll try to have some extended time for questions if you so desire. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your peace toward us, O Lord. We thank you for your kindness. You treat us far better than we deserve. We thank you for the word that you spoke to us today, the work of your Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, who leads us in righteousness, who empowers us by your gospel. We thank you for Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, who is satisfied your demands of justice and clothed us in his righteousness. And Lord, we desire to represent him well in this world. And help us, Lord, we pray, as those who live in the common kingdom and the culture alongside unbelievers, to do a good job of being salt and light to the world. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we considered cultural mandate, uh, Separation of the common and the holy, the difference between that. We talked about common grace, what that means. Institution of civil government, Genesis 4. Noahic covenant, Genesis 9. That's God's common grace covenant with the earth, despite man's depravity, in order to sustain it until the consummation. Talked about how uh, we are similar in the new covenant to uh, how Abraham lived in relationship to his culture, and also we are similar to the Judean exiles when they were in Babylon, and the kinds of instruction that were given to them uh, to live in the world uh, in Jeremiah 29, uh, not to, they're not called to transform culture necessarily, they are called to uh, live out the believing life and uh, participate in culture in a way that honors God. And if that has an effect, and a, tra- a transforming effect on our communities, praise the Lord. Uh, but that there's a difference, as we've seen, uh, just by way of review, between uh, the cultural oh boy, the cultural mandate which is for all humans, believers and unbelievers alike, and the Great Commission which is for the church. Uh, We don't want to confuse these two things. They're not one and the same. Uh, This is rooted in creation, Genesis 1, repeated in uh, Genesis Genesis 9, the Noahic Covenant, which is kind of like a recreation, so to speak, after the deluge, after the flood. And uh, to this belongs common culture, okay, vocations, um, even marriage, it's part of the 
creation mandate to uh, multiply and to rule over the earth. Um, where to work. So things like, yeah, vocation, marriage, uh, are underneath this. Great commissions to make disciples in all the earth. This, strictly speaking, is the kingdom of God, even though God rules over all. We have to understand that. And that we are Christians 24-7. And the way we engage in our vocation, in our marriage, uh, in culture, uh, is always to be done as a Christian by faith and in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. Okay, so how do we then, the question we want to bring up today is, how do we as believers, uh, if we want to set out to um, develop culture, okay, to develop a culture that honors the Lord, to build culture that honors the Lord. Um, what are some things that we can keep in mind? Um, to sum up, I have just five things for us to remember and to consider. Um, first of all, we have to think about the family. Uh, again, remember, when we talk about culture, culture in itself is not Christian. So Christian means to be in Christ. You are in Christ clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you live in a common culture, okay, that God made good in the beginning, but experiences the effects of sin. You live in that culture alongside unbelievers. Um, But how do we then, as those who live in this culture, we're not bringing in the new creation by our cultural activities. Um, The normative standards for the cultural activities are in general, not distinctively, Christian. We have to remember that. It's natural law that uh, it applies here. Um, but uh, how can we seek to develop a culture that is good? The first we need to remember is through the family. So there's, there's five things that I want to bring up, and that's the first. Remember that the family predates the state. And that's important. The state, remember is a result of the fall. It's not appointed until after the fall. The only reason that the state is appointed, as Abraham Kuyper said, is to curb sin. And so the family, we remember, goes back to creation before the fall. So uh, in the garden, all human relationships were centered in the family specifically the divinely ordained creation order of children submitting to parents, wives to husbands. That's part of the creation order. One man, one woman. Uh, You know, the state might try to redefine that. Other people may try to redefine that. It may be legal in a country, according to the state, for two men to be married or two women to be married. But just because something, according to the state, is legal doesn't mean it is right. And we need to always remember that. Again, this is one of the reasons why, as Christians, we need to be issue-oriented when it comes to politics and not party-oriented. To be party-oriented over issue-oriented is to oversimplify matters. And honestly, it's not to think through things very critically. There's going, we can't just adopt a, a, a narrative of my side is always right, other side is always wrong. It's just not going to be true. 
Not all the time. Not if we're going to truly live by the word of God. You can be in a party and say, most things in this party I find are helpful and good, but we have to be issue-oriented. And uh, certainly when it comes to the family, we know that the word of God says that it's between one man, one woman, and there are these roles of submission and service, and that's what predates the fall. Um, It shows that the family and not the state is the foundational building block of human society. And it's something that the state ultimately does not have authority over. Ultimately. Uh, The family is something that has its own realm of God-given authority. So family is important. Now, why is that important for us as, let's just think real practically here. Why is that important for us as, as Christians? Well, how, let me ask you, put it this way, let me put it in the form of a question. How, how, does, uh, how, how does it help our community and our society if Christians are ordering their lives in the home according to the word of God? How does that benefit society? That's not a rhetorical question. Yes. Right. So in a way, we teach society, as Angela's saying, how to live by our example. Now, does Jesus have anything to say about that, about us as Christians being an example before the world? He does? What does he have to say? Salt and light. Where does that come from? We're getting closer. I saw somebody whisper Sermon on the Mount. You know why adults whisper Sermon on the Mount, and now T's going, I'm not going to whisper anything now that he called me up. Uh, because we're afraid that maybe we don't have it quite right. But he's exactly right. It's Sermon on the Mount. Anybody know the chapter? Five. Anybody know the verse? Close. Sixteen. Close. Sorry? Sermon on the Mount. That is in Matthew. Very good, Matthew. See, now, the reason I do this is not to make you feel bad. It's because this is called Sunday... Yes! Yes, you are in school, and, uh, and it's catechism. It's to help us remember, and as Christians, we should, one thing I, I vowed never to do, and I will never do it, is to say, oh, yes, turn to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find that on page number. No, I don't, I'm sorry. I will not. I, nobody can bind my conscience. You need to know where the books of the Bible are. You need to know, and I don't care if your favorite pastor in the world did it that way. I don't do it that way. And uh, we, need to, we need to learn where things are. And you guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. Matthew 5.16, let your good works so shine before others that men may see them and glorify your Father in heaven. But, and around that same passage, what does he say? You are the salt of the earth and you are a city set on a hill, which, by the way, is not the United States of America. I know President Reagan, one of my favorites, had this great sermon speech 
where he called the United States of America a city set on the hill. And recently we've heard that from another GOP candidate. But the, the America is not the city on a hill. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the church. So that's a conflation of the kingdoms. That's an abuse of scripture. And that's all I have to say about that. Uh, so we are the salt and light. How are we salt? How are we salt? Why salt? Why is that the imagery brought up? Preservative. Right. So something doesn't, you know, in the ancient world, you caught a fish and you're going to eat it that day. What would you do with it? You salt it. You still see that in Italy, and they're hardened, and you, then you have to dehydrate them, rehydrate them. And uh, so it's a preservative. And so by us living out uh, the Christian life according to the Word of God in our families, we are teaching society. We are being an example. And this is one of the reasons why the whole gay marriage thing, um, yeah, it's bad, it's not right, but I don't look at it like it's the beginning of the end of the world. The history of the world has seen all kinds of rotten things that are legal. In fact, I look at it as a great opportunity for Christians to demonstrate before the world what a real marriage looks like. So when those things start to become legal and things become crazy and they're just all out of control, yeah, we're not happy about it and you know, we shouldn't be happy about it, but we also ought to say, Lord, give me grace and strengthen me by the Spirit to uh, demonstrate what a real marriage looks like. Help me in my marriage. Help me in my marriage. And also with my children. Keep my children in submission and love them. And uh, we can see, of course, how society oftentimes is out of control when it comes to the family. Other times, not so much. Again, if you rub shoulders with enough unbelievers, you will come across unbelievers who have actually pretty well-ordered families, especially if you're involved in youth sports. Some of them are surprisingly well-ordered. That's natural law. And there's something that, you know, if you're involved in things like youth sports or youth theater or youth arts or whatever, and you see parents who are really concerned about their children, and uh, there's something that resonates with them with the Christian's life that's well-ordered. And so this actually has an effect on society. Okay? So the family. Order your family. If you want to build a culture that is God-honoring, order your family. Number two, vocation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do your vocation well. Your vocation is your calling in life. Um, Work is something that predates the fall. It's something that uh, God has given us to reflect him. Uh, He worked in the beginning, and so we are to work. And the fact that, you know, my job's not fun, the fact that I've got a job I don't like, it, uh, that's a result of the fall. And uh, what we should be looking for in a calling is, yeah, is it something that I'm, I'm good at? Is it something that I relatively enjoy? Is it something that benefits society? And is it something that pays the bills? Um, those are the things that should come together. And, uh, but God is glorified as we do our work the way that the New Testament tells us to. Not as people pleasers, but doing our work as unto the Lord. Our work in the public square 
is not building the kingdom of God. You'll hear sometimes Christians say that. We're not, first of all, we're never building the kingdom. I've heard people say that sometimes. You know, we're building the kingdom brick by brick. But where does it say that in the New Testament? It doesn't say that. It says we're receiving a kingdom, Hebrews 12. Receiving a kingdom and building a kingdom, two different things, two different directions. We're receiving a kingdom. Now, our labors, and sometimes when people hear that, they say, well, then my vocation doesn't matter? Well, of course it matters. God is glorified through your vocation. By you doing honest work, hard work, striving for excellence, making a good shoe, and selling it at a fair price, as Luther said. And the Lord is using your labors to benefit society. And so we need to do our vocations well and to the glory of God. And it benefits the world. Imagine a world, as I said before, imagine a world, a culture, imagine a culture where you had so many Christians ordering their families according to the word of God, and then so many Christians doing their vocations to the glory of God. What would that culture look like, right? See, so often we're trying to demand things of the unbeliever. And that's why I'm always saying the church needs to be the church. The church needs to be the church. We as Christians, the city set on a hill, read Holy Nation, not America. It needs to be doing these things to the glory of God. And they will usually, not always, they will usually have a positive effect on our culture around us. So we need to be productive at work. We need to respect authority structures in the workplace. Colossians 3, Ephesians 6. We need to work quietly and mind our own business. 1 Thessalonians 4. We need to not be lazy. 2 Thessalonians 3. We need to do our work for the benefit of others. Ephesians 4. So imagine what a culture would look like if you had so many Christians actually doing that. This is why I brought it before. One of my thoughts, my dreams, is always imagine a world. This is my John Lennon song, Imagine. Imagine all Christians went on a Monday morning and said, can't work on the Lord's Day, but I will be the best employee I possibly can be the other six days. I believe you would see a revolution in every human resource department of every company. Sure, there'd be a lot of people fired. A lot of people wouldn't get promotions. That's called persecution, and you get rewards for that. So it's win-win. It's win-win. The only reason we don't do that is because we worship the dollar. And we're just, I know, but there's God, and then there's the dollar. That's the reason we don't. You have no business working on a day that God for his people, has designated as holy. We, we reflect him. It goes back to being human from the beginning. And that goes for all the people who decided to work today uh, instead of coming to church. But imagine a culture. Imagine if we, if we actually did our vocations to the glory of God. It would have an effect on society. Uh, third, and I talked about this a little bit last week, do good in society. Do good for your community. Now, that can mean a lot of things. We'll get into, in a minute here, I'll touch on electing good leaders and um, voting for just laws, but let's just talk about the more 
practical things right now, more tangible things than just a ballot. How can you, Christian, do good for your neighborhood, for your community? How are you known in your neighborhood, in your community? Do do people know you? I'm being dead serious here. Do people know you? Or do you just stay within your own circles and uh, wave your neighbor and run into your house? And you hit your garage door closer. Why? If we really care about bringing, making any difference in society, 1 Peter 2, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Doing good there, that word that he uses, means work beyond what is normally expected. It's the same verb that Jesus uses in Luke 6, where he instructs his followers to do more than love their friends and even to love their enemies. Sometimes we think, well, I'm doing good for my community. I pay my taxes, I vote for the right laws, and that's it. But loved ones, I mean, just as your pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you to think beyond that, to, to think about how can you be involved in your community. And, and I don't want to hear I'm too busy. I'm too busy to do it. But I do it. And you know what? It's a blessing. It's an enormous blessing. And I look at it as one of my callings. You should be able to list out all your callings and what you're responsible for. I'm responsible for my own body and soul. It means I need to get to the means of grace. I need to read and pray. I'm responsible for my family, which means I need to provide for them. I need to fix the house and stuff that I don't like to do, but I still got to do it. Uh, You know, that is fix the house. Loving my children is great. Uh, we've got vocation. I'm called to the church. I need to feed, to teach, to preach. I'm called to the broader church. I'm involved in you know, missions committee and writing and radio and that stuff. And then I'm called to uh, be a good neighbor. And so for me, what that looks like is you know, being, serving on the board of the local Little League and then coaching a team. And it's an enormous, opportun- an enormous opportunity for you to be known as a Christian in society. In fact, I just yesterday, out on the ball field with a guy who knows me from two seasons ago, pulls me aside afterward after a little practice and says, you know, I really need to get with you. Maybe we can have a beer or something, and i got to talk to you. And I know he's some personal problems. Guys, that is available for all of us. For all of us. And so we have opportunity to know our neighbors, the people with whom we live, people in our society, people we're going to run into at, at the gas station or wherever, or the soup kitchen. We don't do that as an institution, as the church, but as individuals we do that. And this is part of preserving society, isn't it? Imagine if all Christians were doing that. Imagine if all Christians were involved in their community. What would that community, what would that neighborhood look like? I, I tend to think, generally, it would be safer. It would be, hopefully, cleaner. It would be good as we seek to cultivate the ground responsibly and be good stewards of the resources God has given us as we seek to love our neighbor. I mean, that's the kind of community I'd want to live in. That's the way it should look. 
And it's part of what God says in, to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. How are we doing in seeking the welfare, seeking the welfare of our city? How are you doing in seeking the welfare of your neighborhood, of your street, of your, your community? So there's a responsibility that we have. And by, and by being known as uh, people who are concerned about that, you know what? It, it, it brings glory to God. And they say, those Christians, look at them again. They're volunteering. They're good volunteers. It shouldn't be, you know, uh, non-Christians who do all the volunteering. So we need to be involved in this. We need to love our neighbor. It's not a theory. It's a practice. It's a practice. I get on pastors about this more than anybody. Pastors are the worst. We are the worst. And every time we have a missions conference or something like that, I, I get on them and saying, how many of you pastors have invited your neighbor over for dinner? And it's sad. It's really sad. They don't. They just, I'm in the church. I'm in the parachurch. I'm in the Christian school. I'm back home. You know? And it's like, how do you even, how can you even relate to your congregation? They don't even, you don't even know what it's like to be around to be around uh, non-believers. So we need to have an opportunity to do those things. Uh, fourth, this is important. We want to do good to society. Uh, vote for just laws and wise leaders. Eric Anderson is doing everything he can right now not to s- shout out Amen. Amen. <laughs> Um, so laws you know what's the basic paradigm you know for just laws well are are they in conflict with the word of God you know so we can look at a lot of things you know a lot of things the word of God doesn't speak to as I said before there's all kinds of things on the ballot that the the Special revelation just doesn't speak to specifically, you know, a particular tax increase or should we make the road, should we have more taxes so we can make the road three lanes instead of two lanes? And we, as Christians, may have disagreements on things like that, legitimate disagreements. One might say three lanes is good. It's a, it's a wise use of our resources and it would allow people to get back and forth to work and we need to be, you know, doing good vocation. Others might say, no, two lanes is just fine. We have enough taxes. This is going to be a tax increase. And we can, ha- we can look at how to apply a principle uh, differently and we can have legitimate disagreements on it. But there's a lot of things that are simply, we're not going to have those kinds of disagreements on. It should be very clear. And so, um, so for example, you know, if... If the government says you need to pledge all your allegiance first to the state um, and do whatever the state says, maybe even marginalize one particular ethnic group, or they pass a law saying this particular ethnic group needs to wear a gold star 
and they shouldn't be served to certain places, at certain places, um, we should say, no, I can't vote for that, obviously. Uh, if, if there's a law that says we're going to look at one particular ethnicity as only three-fifths of a human being, um, we, cannot, we cannot go along with that. Every human being is an image bearer. So I'm saying, in other words, you would, we'd have to disobey those laws, like Nazi Germany or the, the, uh, the slave trade in America. Uh, those are not in conformity with Scripture. And uh, I'm just using an example. If it's a law that's ultimately going to cause us to sin, we cannot obey it. And we need to seek to change things that we think are unhelpful and are, are in, in infringing upon our own rights and our own personal property that the state is called to protect. Um, So, you know, taxes are going up and up and up in California. Is the answer, we all need to leave California. Let's all leave California. Because California has gone to hell in a handbasket. Some Christians would look at it that way. Now imagine if that happened. Let's say all the Christians left California. Is God honored by that? Is God honored by that? Are we called to withdraw from a place and go somewhere else? Because it's, uh, we just think it's too ungodly. No, Paul never told the Christians in Rome to do that when he wrote Romans or Corinth, a very immoral place. He corrected their behavior, but never told them, leave, go form a monastery, Go create a, a commune, you know, uh, and uh, withdraw from society. No, we seek to change those laws if we find them to be unhelpful, if we find them not to be good for our neighbor. So the thing we always have to ask, our basic paradigm is, what's the best thing for me to love my neighbor here? How can I love my neighbor concerning these laws? And yeah, if taxes are getting so out of control that families can't even make ends meet, then we need to seek to lower those taxes and change the laws as we can. Or if you've got a ridiculous speed limit that nobody obeys and the police officers themselves don't even enforce unless you go 15 miles, but not 10, then maybe we should seek to change that. You know, maybe an unwise law. And then wise leaders. Wise leaders. Is a leader, is he willing to work within the bounds of his authority? In other words, is he willing to follow the Constitution? Does he have wisdom? Now, I want you to think about this. I'm just going to throw out a few Proverbs, and you think of the candidates right now. Okay? Proverbs 12, 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32 Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 29.11 A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. As you're seeing these candidates, we need to think about, do they have wisdom according to Scripture? 
Do they just let it all flow? Just let it all out? Do they have the, the restraint of a filter? Is that somebody you want leading one of the most powerful nations in the world and being our commander-in-chief? Is he, does he give us reason to believe he's a servant to society, not ambitious and desiring power and personal prestige? I know, in my book, that pretty much cancels out all of them, except for maybe a couple. <laughs> That's a personal opinion. Well, those are personal opinions. But, um, but these are, these, this is the lens. The lens that we have to look through is not our personal opinion, but first scripture. Do, are they willing to stay within their bounds? And, and are, they, are they going to keep us out of, keep, are, they, are they going to seek to be peacemakers as much as possible? Well, we hope so, yeah. So hold on. So what we need to do is we need to look at uh, a lot of things like their voting records and what their policies are. And sure, many times we're going to have disagreements on that. But remember, these are the standards that Scripture gives us. Is he willing to stay within the bounds of the authority that God appointed for the civil magistrate, which is simply to curb evil and to uh, protect society and, its, and, and citizens' property. That's his job. His authority is limited. They have no authority to regulate Scripture. They have no authority to regulate the preaching of the gospel, administration of sacraments, or biblical church discipline. And personally, guys, in a, in a society where, like ours that uh, is pluralistic, if you, ha- if you have uh, a president who says we're going to ban all one kind of religion, um, what makes you think that he won't do that with Christianity? Or your version of Christianity? Maybe he has a different version in mind. And if one religion, even Christianity, becomes the favored religion, well then, why can't another religion be the favored religion, by the same merit and by the same token. He's stepping beyond the bounds of his authority. He's going beyond the bounds to which he has been appointed. So we have to be sure that we were careful here. We could talk a lot about that, obviously. Last thing, and we'll have time for a few questions. So, take your calling in the family seriously. Take your vocation seriously. Do good for your community. Seek to... uh, Vote for just laws and elect wise leaders. And then finally, we're talking, about, we're talking about the development of culture. The development of culture here. Not fleeing culture, which the Bible doesn't call us to do. But the last one is what? Missions and evangelism. And by missions, I mean church planning because that's what the apostles meant. The way they applied the Great Commission was by planting churches. And as churches are planted, that are preaching the gospel, administrating the sacraments, and exercising church discipline, what's happening? Disciples are being made. And as disciples are being made, what's happening? Well, hopefully they're doing this. They're reading, they're, they're taking the, the word of God as their starting point and ordering their lives around it. And the more churches you have in those godless places, like California, or Las Vegas, or pick whichever one you want. They're all godless, because the world's filled with godless people. 
the more churches that are planted, the more disciples are being made, the more disciples that are being made, well, you're probably going to have some effect. Probably. It's not, we're not guaranteed. Our mission is to make disciples. But there's the secondary effect that shouldn't surprise us when we see communities looking a lot better as there are more Christians. And that also means evangelism. So you see how it falls on us, the onus. How am I doing? Forget about my neighbor. How am I doing with my family? How am I doing in my vocation? How am I doing doing good for community? How am I doing in this? Did I even register to vote? How am I doing in evangelism? Telling other people about the gospel. It's so easy, you see, to just blame the other side or blame anybody. But these all have to do with me as the individual Christian. These all have to do with me. Well, how am I participating in, in these things? And by doing these things, uh, in, especially in the big cities where culture is being developed, okay, we are fulfilling the Great Commission in this, in this area and doing these things, we're bringing glory to God as we seek to live out the Christian life. And that's what, that's what the apostles did. They went to the big, godless cities in the first century. Rome, Corinth, Athens. They went to these places and planted churches and then said, you read the epistles, what do they say? Now, live as Christians. Live as Christians. To bring glory to God, you may, it may have an effect on culture. Hopefully it will. It might not. You might be suppressed. You might be persecuted. But we shouldn't be surprised when, if we're doing these things, we see a difference in society. And, and my final comment is this. I just, as, as I see society changing in America, and I know many of you who are even older than me, you see much change in society. We can't, we can't first blame the ultra-progressives. The first blame comes upon the church for not being the church. Doctrine has gone out the window. Things like church membership have gone out the window. Keeping the Lord's Day gone out the window. Divorce rate, pff, sky high. Uh, you know, people not living out their vocations. The church not acting like the church. The church needs to act like the church. And it will be a preservative, salt. And it will be a city set on a hill, light. Any questions? Sure. Yeah. Oh, there's plenty of things we could add to this. Yeah. But I'm saying, as, as for us in our society. But, but when I see, when we talk about Willis B. Ball, Ball, that type of thing, well, voting all comes around. Prayer is like Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, and we are commanded in Scripture to pray. There is no command in Scripture to elect. It's just that in our form of government right now, in this temporal society, we have that opportunity. And so if we're talking about you know, seeking to develop a good culture, then we need, to, we, need to, we need to do the best we can. But you know what? If our guy, here's what I'm going to say it again, if our guy doesn't get in, Christian, listen up, listen up now, listen up. Because I'm on Facebook too. If, Christian, if, you're, if your guy doesn't get in, and a guy from the other side gets in, number one, you are to pray for him. 
You pray for them, just like you said, John. Everywhere we're told to pray for our leaders. And then when he does something noteworthy that is good, we have to at least acknowledge that. You're not selling out to the other side. You're not a closet other sider. You're being, you're being issue-oriented, God-honoring, and you're thinking critically. It's, too, it's just lame and superficial and oversimplified to just do what uh, the media wants you to do on both sides as it sells its product to you to adopt the, you know, I'm going to blame the president if he's not on my side. That's my narrative. And if he does something wrong that even my guy did when he was in office, oh, I'm going to attack him. And if he does something good that my guy did when he was in office, I'm not going to acknowledge it. God is not glorified by that, that kind of behavior. So you need to pray for President Obama. You need to pray for President Obama, not curse him. And you need, and you need to acknowledge even those things that he has done that are praiseworthy and noteworthy. You're not a, I'm just going to come on and say it, you're not a closet liberal or progressive, okay? You're not denying the Trinity. It's not heresy. You're being a mature Christian when you do that. It doesn't mean you have to vote for him if you don't agree with his policy, but you do have to pray for him, no matter who's in office. Other questions? Right. Sure, yeah. Lloyd-Jones always had a good grasp on sin and the two kingdoms. And this will come as a surprise to anyone who knows Lloyd-Jones. Anybody know where he was politically? He was a labor party. Dun, dun, dun. Next question. <laughs> Next question. You got questions. Don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. What about Christian schools? What about them? Well, I think, I mean, this might come as some surprise, but I'm not a, a huge advocate of Christian schools. I know that might come as heresy to some. Um, I, I think that the primary responsibility, now if you've just heard this online and you almost crashed your car, just pull over and hear me out. The primary responsibility of catechesis lies with the family and the church, not with the school. I think it's perfectly fine for parents to organize schools because you know, it's better that uh, the state doesn't have all of the say over schools. It's a shame that private schools cost so much, which is why I'm in favor of vouchers, by the way. That's just my own personal opinion. You know, give everybody a voucher and let them choose and let schools compete. But um, a Christian school can be a good thing or a bad thing. And I'm speaking as somebody who went to Christian schools and sent my kids to Christian schools. What if you go to a Christian school that teaches bad theology? What if they try to teach a Christian form of math, which, by the way, doesn't exist? 
2 plus 2 equals 4. You can't make it 4 in a Christian way. Right. Well, I think that families, because the primary responsibility for education lies with the family. The family, the parents are supposed to educate their children. Now, you can farm that out. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm a humanities guy. That shouldn't come as any surprise. I'm awful at math, okay? Um, I think this is going to be embarrassing. Um, I, I tapped out at geometry <laughs> in 10th grade. I'm like, done, over with. You know, so my girls are in... Algebra 2 and calculus, and I'm looking at that stuff and I'm holding it upside down, I can't tell. So you're going to, you farm that out to, uh, to somebody who can teach that. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's a personal decision. And, you, and I think that in some cases, you can, a family can send their kids to a publicly funded school that, that actually works out really well. But what the family must do always is have that responsibility of, of catechizing the kids. I've put it this way. I have seen kids go to public schools who know their catechism so well, know the Bible so well, and are able to put into categories those things that they're hearing. And I've seen kids who go to Christian schools where the parents don't do their job in the home. They, they're not doing family worship. They're not doing catechism. So I think that it's, not, it's just too easy for us to say, you've got to send your kid to a Christian school. Um, I think it's a personal decision for parents to make, and you have to apply that wisely, whether that's going to be homeschool or Christian school or, in some cases, a a well-ordered, publicly funded school. That's not a confessional matter or a biblical matter. But we do have the the parents ultimately have responsibility to make sure the kids are educated and, and, above all, are learning the Christian faith. That's how I would see it. And as you have a society doing that, again, as you have a society doing that, more than likely, that society will have a good, it'll have a good effect on society. As you have people doing that, I'm saying, it'll be salt and light in the development of culture. So in other words, you know, our Christian faith, what I've been trying to say over these last five, six weeks or whatever, is that the, the Christian faith is not merely lived out in the walls of the church, but you, as Paul tells us, these are the realms in which you live it out. Yes, you pray for leaders, and he tells us, but do good for your community, do your vocation well, um, even when you're treated unfairly and unjustly. And so, in the meantime, we continue to do all the work we're, we're supposed to do in missions and evangelism. All right, we'll, we'll call it quits there. And uh, next week we'll have our fire drill. Active shooter drill, all that. See, you're trying to be good stewards, right? You've got to be good stewards. And uh, then the following week, uh, Dr. Glomsrud, uh, what do you have for us? To be determined. <laughs> He's waiting for a word from the Lord. So, all right, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we, we thank you for the time that you've given us. And we do pray, Lord, with humility that you would help us, empowered by the gospel, to live according to your word in the home, in the public square, in our communities. We do pray for our leaders, Lord. Pray that they would do their, fulfill their callings in a way that honors you. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, as the church, to be mindful of Christ's commission to us to plant churches, make disciples. Help us to have the boldness to evangelize, the love for others to evangelize, and the love for others to be involved in our communities. 
May we be known for our good works, Lord. Make us, we pray, a city set on a hill and salt and light in this world so that you will be honored. Help us, Lord, for we are weak, we are sinful, and we need the help and aid of your spirit and the power of your gospel. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.